Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and digital production. Second hour is something you want to spend a little bit more time on. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about time lapses, uh, what kind of tools we use, um, how we shoot them, how we process them. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that in the second hour. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thanks, Alex. First in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on the new Sony PTZ auto framing cameras? Looks like Sony's taken some of the facial tech from the A7R5. Yeah, I, I, we haven't seen, I haven't gotten to use them obviously yet, but you know, PTZs are becoming a big deal. I think that they're, you know, small chip sizes is something that for, for me, when it comes to PTZs, um, I lose interest pretty quickly when I see a small chip size. Um, so I think the, the, the FR7 is really exciting. Uh, the smaller chip sizes, you know, it just, it looks smaller. You know, so so I, I think that I, I don't think I populate it that way. Um, as far as the auto framing goes, um, the real question when we test it, whenever we get to test one of these, is we, we're going to want to know, um, you know, what kind of headroom right now. I'm cutting my head off. <laughs> my, 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 so I, I'm, I'm not a good example. Um, but, but we want to know, we want to be able to put that head really close to the top um, of the frame. That's kind of more of a modern view. A lot of times you see uh, the auto framing, you know, add a lot of space to the top of the head. It doesn't show that in the marketing materials on the web page, um, but it really centering that head is a real bummer. And so, um, so anyway, so I think that that's going to be a thing that a lot of us are really interested to see, you know, how they, how they manage there. Go ahead, Courtney. It does say on, on the website, I was looking at it, it says it does uh, PTZ auto framing with built-in AI analytics. So it shows a picture of a guy full frame holding up something. So maybe, uh, maybe it will keep headroom and uh, yeah, uh, do it right if their AI analytics work correctly. Yeah. I mean, it could, it could possibly work. So, so it'll be interesting to see um, how well it works. Um, I think that, you know, I think that one of the other things that we're going to see over time is whether we really need these kind of wide stages and wide stage shots, um, you know, for a lot of content. You know, I think that we still use those and that makes sense, but I, it's just not a very, it's, it, it's not compelling on a small screen. It's very compelling. I work on large, very large screens <laughs> for a lot of the stuff and people small in frame work really, really well. If you're talking about a theater size screen or bigger people in small screens are very uncompelling you know in the, in that framing and so i think that as you start to think about mobile viewers even computer viewers and ipad viewers or tablet viewers uh it, it's the wide shots that a lot of times people use that have used in the past are not very successful and i think that's one of the things that youtubers understand probably better than most is that you know that head and shoulder waist up very close up shot and then that also requires a lot less set um, so, um, the, 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 the use case that they show on the website, I'm not sure if I would, that I would do. Uh, next question. Tobias Moss from Minneapolis asking a few recommendations for ultra portable tripods that only need to hold up either a smartphone or a PavoTube 6C. I like the Joby Telepod mobile, but would be happy to find a heavier and taller variation. Go ahead, Jason. So the worst thing about tripods is having too many, um, I would say that the Peak Design Travel Tripod is probably my favorite of all time. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I'm loving that uh, small rig uh, tripod for like a hundred bucks. It's like super cheap and maybe a little heavier than you need it to be. But then again, you never know when you get a camera that might require that. Go ahead, Bill. 
And I'm not sure whether you're actually talking about a tripod or a stand here, because when you say the Pavo tube uh, ball head on a stand, which would be much less expensive than an actual tripod, might be a better way to go. For small tripods, there's a couple of uh, things I like, but these little B-Freeze that come in a very small bag, this thing's only about maybe 18 inches long, so it travels really, really well. Inside, there's a tripod that uses the upside down leg form factor, so it's literally about uh, a foot and a half long when you get to uh, that. When it unfolds, it's very stable. It goes up to almost six feet tall. It is a four-stage tripod, and that's one of the things you'll learn about these. The more stages, the more distance there is, or the more range you have between compact and tall. Um, I always wrap a little bit of gaffer's tape around the legs of my tripod. This one is metal, um, but you can get them in carbon fiber if you're worried about lates. Uh, wait, excuse me. The other thing, though, is that if you're just looking for a stand, I'm a big fan and I have a set of uh, Manfrotto um, stacker stands. They are flat tripods and they you can put three of them in a row in one little unit, carry them around. They're very lightweight, but still pretty stable. And those stacker stands have been with me on almost every set that I've ever gone to. So this and that together is an amazing rig for both camera work and lighting. Yeah, I've I've also owned the uh, the, the the tripod that the Bill showed there, and it's a it's a solid tripod. The one that I probably use the most is the Mi Photo uh, has one that is that gets very small. The big thing for when you look at a small travel tripod is that you want to make sure that it'll fit into a carry on. <laughs> to me, that is and 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 the one that Bill showed will show I, I believe will fit into a carry on that reverse. Yeah. Sometimes you have to unscrew the head uh, or turn down the turn down the ball head to fit it in there. But but you but you want to make sure that it fits into your carry on. Um, that's that's the deb at, at straight up and down, not at an angle. <laughs> so uh, that really makes a huge difference. And the Mi Photo one has been super solid uh, for me um, to to use as well. Go ahead, Tom. And if you're looking to get into odd places, get yourself a platypod and put a little ball head on it. You can put these things on the ground. You can strap them to poles. You can screw them into walls. Can, can you, you explain what the platypod is? Well, okay. Here's their big one, and it is a flat plate. Oh. Looks like a cheese plate. It does it, does, has, it have, does it have Visa? Does it have a Visa screws? <laughs> no, it doesn't have Visa, oh, but it like does have little little legs that you can flip out. You got the rubber tip for the legs, or you got the spike in for the legs. That way, you can level it. It's got places where you can put in straps where you That's can strap pretty. it to something. You can also screw it into the wall, and then you put a ball head on this thing, and then you can put it nearly everywhere. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and, and uh, another one that I actually use when I travel, um, I talked about the, the, the Mi Photo for a tripod for lights for the 6Cs. What I actually use are ProMaster LSCT, LS-CT. To travel a light stand, it also fits in your carry-on, goes pretty high. Um, I think we've bought maybe 40 of them. <laughs> we use them in our kits. Um, the, there's another side thing about that. It's the lightest thing we can find to shoot 360 images if you're using something like a Theta. And the reason that we use it is because the legs open right at the very bottom. It's easier to paint them out. So, um, so a couple, a couple features there. Let's go ahead to the next question. 
Andy Kokendorfer from Viera, Florida, asking, I installed Mac OS Ventura, and now the source video on a Blackmagic Ultra Studio Recorder 3G can no longer be seen in more than one application at a time. Any thoughts? Is this a new Ventura security setting? Thanks. I am seeing the same thing. So I have, I, I put Ventura on, I can only see it in one place. Um, and I'm not sure if there is a workaround. So um, so stay tuned. We're going to keep on testing it, try to figure it out. But it may be some kind of security or or some kind of new um, new setup. I have to go back to something with an older one to make sure that just something else hadn't changed. I had updated a bunch of things all at one time. Um, but, uh, but currently, uh, yeah, we are having trouble seeing it in more than one place. So stay tuned. Um, next question. And it's Richard Lavery from Belfast, UK. Last week, Wowza announced the end of life of the ClearCaster any recommendations for replacement 4K encoders? I go ahead, John. Yeah, this is crazy. Doug Doug Ferguson has one of these, and they just they're end of life in this thing. I, I don't know if this thing could be modified, but you have to use their cloud service. You would think you could go in there and just reformat it as a Linux box and and use it for RTMP or whatever, but you can't. And so uh, Jonas and all the guys are moving to the Epifan uh, Nano, and then they have a 4K uh upgrade for the for the pearl box yeah the um uh the other one to look at is Vidion. Vidion makes the makes the hardware that's used by the amazon or they did i think that it's but um Vidion makes a lot of great encoders um and so you might want to look at those um as well they do 4k encoders and they're in the 1500 dollars range or something like that that does uh, and they will do pretty much most of the different formats that you want um of course the epifan can do do some of those things as well um, I think the Epifan might be a little bit more expensive. Um, the one that I use, of course, is the UHD from Amazon, which is the UHD Link, which is more expensive, but also uses Zixi as a transport, um, which is important to me. Um, and uh, and so the um, and that's considerably more expensive. I think it's like five thousand dollars. So you just have to decide, you know, where you want to go in the price point. But there's, I think, the reason that it's getting end of life is because there's plenty of other options now that can do what it can do for a smaller uh, form factor. Uh, next question. David Brady from New York, New York, building out my Zoom ISO rig and curious if it's necessary to de-embed audio from the SDI signal. Zoom's native echo cancellation is pretty good. And isn't the audio ISOed for each participant? What are the reasons to consider? Uh, I would say control, you know, so you can definitely take the embedded audio and, and make that work. Um, the the main the main aspect of that is whether you want to be able to control everyone in a mixer. So being able to have all those individual individual uh, outputs, we're working towards that right now inside of this show, where we could have affect EQ, we could affect and even build the thing that we're trying to build towards. First, we're just trying to be able to correct sync for every person. But the next step for us is once we have all those individual ISO feeds out via Dante or or, or something else. We can what, what we want to do is start building an auto mix system that we control. So the auto switching system, and not the auto mix, but auto switching, the auto switching system inside of uh, all these platforms is good. Middle of the road does what it needs to do. Back in the day, when we were when I was doing lots of Hangouts, Hangouts had a plug-in architecture, and we built into that plug-in architecture the ability to control it based on our own situation. You know what we wanted, and literally tweak the attack and decay on every person individually because some people talk a different way and some people do something else. And we could also decide we're not going to auto switch to these four people, only these people. So there was a lot of things that we started doing related to that and getting all those individual channels out and then delivering them to something like Isadora to pay attention to. We, we feel like down the road, 
we're going to be able to do it right now. We're still using the mix. So, so you can definitely get a lot without de-embedding the, the audio out of the STI. So it's, it's, a gr- it's a great step right now. There are some reasons down the road that we're going to be and why we're continually working on moving towards um, something else is, beca- is specifically because of this, um, of being able to have way more control over the audio quality, uh, over the, the auto switching, those types of things uh, is something that we want to be able to do. So you might want to think of that as a long-term goal. Next question. Tim Holm from San Lorenzo, California. Tim's asking, is it worth going to a Shure SM58's beta over a Shure SM58 regular in a live sound situation? Are they really that much better? Uh, Javier? Well, it depends. It's not only like a direct uh, upgrade. It has different features. For example, it has a different polar pattern. The beta is a super cardioid and the SM58 is a cardioid. So it will help different with rejection from the, like, if you have like side fields or like speakers on stage, maybe the super cardioid will help you with reject the, the sides. Uh, so it would be different. Also, I found that it has a less handling noise. Like it sounds less than, than, than the other one. So I, I will tell you, maybe you can rent one and give your talent that and try it. So you can know the differences. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Exactly what Javier said. As a matter of fact, I checked the polar patterns. I brought them up. Hopefully, you'll be able to see this. The two, the Beta 58 is the top left. The regular 58 is the bottom left. And look at the difference in that lobe behind it. The super cardioid of the Beta 58 has pickup to the back that is pretty present. It's not huge, but if you're on stage and standing in front of a wall of Marshall stacks, that's going to make a difference where the traditional 58 has almost nothing from the back in high frequencies. It's still got a reasonable low frequency pickup. So those are the kind of things that people look for when they're trying to determine what mic is the correct mic for a particular use. Next question. Live Kitchener from Sook, British Columbia, Canada, asking rechargeables. Do you have a dedicated area or is it just plug a wall wart into what's available? And does anyone use rechargeable double A's and similar? Go ahead, Javier. Uh, well, definitely have a designated area. If not, you're going to have people running around searching for the batteries that they connected like half an hour ago so it always have like this is a charging station and you may you have multiple for like for sound and for different things and uh, i also i uh, do use double a rechargeables for like rehearsals and like non-critical applications and at my home all the time like for christmas light and all of those but where i'm doing live or like critical applications i always use like new batteries because the the voltage in the rechargeables especially double a's tends to like drop down very quickly, so avoid it in critical situations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. On the subject of double A's uh, being rechargeable, make sure they are rechargeable double A's because regular double A's uh, may hold a charge, but not as long as it originally did. So that can get you into trouble, especially in a production environment. Good, Tom. I use a ton of these interloop batteries. Uh, I also have a pair of uh, the 16-position titanium chargers. Uh, when you're running four strobes and they each take four batteries apiece, you run through batteries really quick. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I also use the interloop batteries. And, and for charging things that require uh, USB wall warts, I have several of these power supplies that have... Uh, you know, five or more uh, USB-A power connectors on them. So, uh, and usually at least two of them are two amp and the rest are one amp. So they can charge uh, tablets or phones or whatever else requires uh, five volt power to charge. Yeah, and um, 
like Javier mentioned, I don't use them on anything that matters live. <laughs> so so I, I use rechargeable batteries heavily on everything that doesn't matter. Um, so, you know, things that I, that if it went down, I can replace it and it's casual. It's not a big deal. And I've got more, I got a big pile of them that are already recharged and ready to go and everything else. So the rechargeable batteries are great and I use them a lot to save the usage of them. When it comes to mics and, and other things like that, we just swap out regular batteries. And I will be honest, we, we have a pile of batteries that were used in an event. Oftentimes we'll swap them out twice a day, once in the morning, once after lunch. And then we put them into a box that we use them until they die later. <laughs> but, but we make sure that we have fresh batteries in our backs, packs, in our packs all the time. Um, you know, because it's, uh, and, and on big, on big events, sometimes we're paranoid and we swap, swap them out almost every break, um, to make sure that there, if there's one thing that goes wrong, it's not going to be that. Um, and so, uh, and then those batteries still get used. It's not like they get thrown away, but they don't do it. They're, they're used and, and make sure that we have pristine batteries all the time, um, inside of any kind of thing that's part of a live component. Um, next question. Next question here from James Fosline in Minneapolis, Minnesota. What would be a good obstacle course to test or train your editing skills? Dave. Well, you know, whenever I want to just practice something, I'll take my camera out and wander the neighborhood and shoot anything interesting. Uh, if I'm on vacation or something, I'll go around a neighborhood where I'm staying and uh, shoot anything. And then when I get back to my uh, final cut, I just sort of fool around with it, and sometimes I'll set it to music. Uh, one of the most challenging obstacle course I think I ever did was to hand somebody, uh, it was a teenager, hand them a camera, and they just went around and shot whatever they thought was interesting, and I took it all in, and uh, it was very confusing to try and figure out what kind of story I could make out of it. But I eventually did. I found some ways of doing, uh, you know, cutaways with some of his more important shots, and play around with it, and, and it actually does challenge you when it's somebody else's vision, uh, and anyone who's paid to edit always is pretty much working with someone else's vision. But when I want to practice, yeah, I just wander around to some interesting place. Uh, I've got a lot of interesting places nearby I can go and do nature shots or uh, street shots or uh, high-rises. So uh, that's the kind of thing I do is just a random set of pictures and then try and make a story out of it. Go ahead, Mitchell. Any client-supplied footage? Um, the reason we like to shoot our own stuff is our DP, he, he shoots like an editor, which means he's thinking about every shot as he goes. All right, yeah, go ahead, uh, Jesse. When we get a new piece of equipment or have some new idea of how we want to edit, the first thing we do is we plan a music video. I have the benefit of being married to a world-class artist, so we can always pull one of her tracks and do something for her if we want to. But um, I'm sure if you look around your area, you'll find bands that need a new music video for, for their work, and there's just fantastic music being done everywhere right now. Alex, have you frozen? Sorry about that. Oh, <laughs> I learned something new about my my computer. So anyway, so if if I transfer a file uh, from one side to the from one computer to another while we're talking, it just shut the whole thing down. So anyway, um, uh, so uh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah. So to me, it depends on what you're learning and what where you are right now. For me, the beginning is learning reductive editing, and that's taking something, and it typically happens in like a, a you're recording somebody doing a presentation, and they have ums and ahs and things like that. And your goal here is to take away all the distractions and make it flow well. So you're really doing kind of what we call a radio edit. You're just trying to make sure that there's no breaks in information and all flows directly. So that for me is reductive editing. You're getting rid of the bad stuff. The next level is to do additive 
editing, which is you're saying to yourself, what additional material would help me tell this story? So now you're adding material back in without changing the story flow. And that makes it more visually interesting. Um, the, the next thing I think I would concentrate on would be dialogue editing. And that requires uh, the traditional two-person he said, she said. It steps you up to the area of thinking, okay, I can cut back and forth to each character when they're talking, but maybe using things like cutaways and uh, L cuts and J cuts, you'll find it more compelling to see the reactions of the second person in the dialogue where the first person is emoting or, or performing. So in that case, what you want to do is maybe you hold on the character who just said something kind of important and see the reaction of the other person while their dialogue continues or vice versa. Uh, cut to the dialogue of the second person in anticipation of a cut. All those are traditional editing skills that if you work on, it really informs you as to how to tell your story best. Find clients, uh, even if they're not paid. That's the way to, that's the way you get better at editing, the, the way you get better at everything. And, and that goes to go to nonprofits, go to things you care about, go to, but you need somebody else to make the decision as to whether it's done or not, not you. So you don't make the decision about what you shoot. You don't make the decision. You can make some of the decisions about how you shoot. Um, but the, the way that, that you learn the fastest, you can do it a lot of other ways that are less painful, I promise. <laughs> like, but, you know, um, but, but going to a client and saying, Hey, do you want a PR? I'm, you know, working on some stuff and doing some tests. Would you like a PR video or would you like, and this would be like a nonprofit or, or something like that. Um, but the reason for that is that clients ask for things that are unreasonable. They will ask you to do things that, that don't make any sense, that, that are hard and they make you think about how to do something like you're like, oh, and don't say no, say, okay, well, you know, figure it out. And even if it's free, treat it like you're getting paid a hundred bucks an hour and you're going to make it all work um, and get that footage and put it together or do it for if they already have some footage. But client work is the golden, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the golden treasure of how to learn fast uh, is because they'll keep on asking you to do things that you think are stupid, that you think are hard, that you think are unreasonable. And, but when you get out the other end, you have a whole bunch of new skills that you had to learn, not the ones that you just wanted to learn. Uh, when we build our own stuff, we tend to work around our own inabilities. Um, next question. From Jesse Kester in Glendale, I've heard the expression right directly to metal on the show. What does that mean? Uh, go ahead, Dave. Well, Apple uh, has uh, capabilities in their chips now for what they call metal. And that's sort of a special process for handling um, deeper graphics and, and other functions. And uh, writing directly to metal means changing your code to access that metal process rather than the CPU or GPU. So, Good, Courtney. Yeah, once again, Apple has taken a term and used it for themselves. But uh, usually it refers to the hardware abstraction level, the, the HAL. And almost all GPUs, uh, graphics processors, have a, a hardware extract, uh, HAL abstraction layer so that the manufacturer of the chips writes interface software that goes between that's low level software that goes with that chip so that it uh, ex only exposes um, certain functions of that chip to software and those things that are exposed don't change so they can change the chip and that hardware abstraction layer will handle the differences between chips so that programmers don't have to 
change their code if the chip changes slightly or there's another revision of the chip you'd have to change your code so writing directly to the metal means bypassing that hardware abstraction layer and uh, writing directly to the registers of the GPU or the CPU and it's uh, it's a bad idea if uh, if uses their chips fairly modifies their chips fairly recently because you will have to modify your software accordingly yeah go ahead Bill yeah, really quickly, I, Courtney was very close to what I'm thinking. Uh, most software runs in abstraction layers, and it's software built on top of APIs and things like that. At the core level of the chip, the chip really only understands assembly language, which is the the root, tell me what to send down, what trace, where, and how to handle it. So the closer you get to the assembly language that is talking directly to the chip, the faster things run. So uh, write directly to metal means get rid of all the abstractions and the software and the APIs and the, the core processors, and just give me a command that I know how to execute natively. Yeah, and in the past, you, you would get more performance. So um, one of the things that, you know, we conduit that, we, that, um, that was written for DB Garage for instance, was written really to the metal, like Polly wrote it. I mean, just wrote it straight to the cards. And the problem you ended up with is that it worked a lot better on some cards than others. So for instance, the way that uh, ATI and now AMD packaged their graphics was very, very difficult. If you're writing straight to it, it was the way it chunks it made it really hard to get performance out of. And NVIDIA was a lot easier <laughs> you know, to, to write to. Uh, so, so that's why a lot of professional applications use NVIDIA specifically is because they're writing to those registers. The the downside is, as Courtney said, every time something was upgraded, we had to, you know, really figure out how we were going to rewrite that and make it work. The advantage was is that we were able to key um, 1080p, you know, uncompressed 444 footage in 2008 live on set with a laptop. <laughs> with a Mac laptop, you know, like it would, it would key it at every frame was there. Directors would walk in and go, is it going to look as good as this on? And we were like, it's going to look better when we have post-processing. Um, so we had perfectly clean um, um, movement and everything else uh, at that time on a computer that should not have been able to do that. Nowadays, if you're writing, especially on the Mac platform, you should never do that. <laughs> you should never try to write anything directly to it. You have to write to the abstraction layer because Apple, all of Apple's, uh, everything that they're doing is utilizing both the GPU and the CPU. It would be immensely complicated to get performance out of it if you try to write it yourself. So you have to write. And the, and the apps that haven't done that have done some kind of custom version of it or built their own libraries are quickly falling behind the apps that are writing straight to Apple's quote-unquote metal. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira Flora asking, anyone find success progress billing clients similar to the construction industry? Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, Andy, I'm sorry. I don't know how the construction industry does it, but I'll tell you how I do it and what works for me. Um, thirds, I pay, uh, or I have the client uh, pay a third on accepting the, uh, the scope of work. I do a third just before production uh, begins and a third when they approve it. Yeah, it, it just really depends on you know, the reason they do construction style is because there's an immense amount of capital investment into the construction area that a construction company doesn't necessarily want to uh, shoulder. Also, it's a place to negotiate if things are running over cost, you know, and, and talk about those things or things are running behind schedule. So it gives it gives the the um, contract owner a little bit of work, a little bit of leverage um, between things. It also gives the, the contractor a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of you know, cash flow process. And a lot of times they have to, I mean, this is, they're, they're not 
creating ideas. They are moving dirt. <laughs> so, so they have to, um, there's a lot of machinery and people that are required to do that. Um, we do do that in, in larger projects. Um, you know, I've, I've def- definitely done that. The ability to not have to do that um, definitely get the, the hard part you're always going to run up against is companies that don't need to do that have a huge competitive advantage for larger shows. So the ability to whether, you know, if you're dealing with a big company and you're working with, and it can be different in Hollywood, it can be different in things, but in corporate, it is a, in corporate, being able to say, I can, I can do your whole job for a large corporation with an MSA. Once you have an MSA with a Fortune 100 company, you're going to get paid. It's just a matter of when. And your ability to wait uh, means that you can take jobs that, because they'll just walk away. Um, a lot of the large corporations will walk away um, from a project if they have to pay up front because they just don't have a mechanism for it. So um, so you, you, you can get yourself into that mechanism um, relatively effectively if you can build the trust and you know, and, and again, build the cash flow, which takes time. And it kind of weeds out a lot of companies because um, the companies that build up to a point where they have the the ability to do that um, can take a lot of that work. So you have to, you're always going to be competing against that. Go ahead, Bill. I think Alex said the key words, build a trust. After a, a number of years with some companies, they got to the point where they were more than comfortable with breaking payments into things, particularly as things got a little more complex. And um, the board of directors was notoriously a little mercurial in a company I'm thinking about. And so they would give you a firm go ahead. Let's start, you know, give me your initial billing, your first third or whatever. We're going to pro- proceed along this path. And then somewhere down the road, uh, they would not continue to proceed uh, that was a little weird, but we had gotten two thirds of the amount of money and didn't have to do or deliver the video. So it actually turned out to be financially successful for us. Uh, another time, though, it was really weird is which I got a note from my contact and they said, could you please build the rest of the uh, project now? We're going to uh, close out our books for this thing. And I said, sure. So I built the whole thing. And then the project went away. So I called the client. I said, uh, you've paid me for this whole video and it's not happening. Do you want a refund or something? He said, no, we can't even handle that. Just keep the money. You go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the construction industry does have an advantage in that their collections department comes equipped with a large selection of concrete shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Preformed. Yeah, you you will you will make that bill. Uh, yeah, and, and it's, uh, yeah, you definitely... Um, uh, it, you know, you can definitely try to get those things incorporated into it, but it's it's really something that uh, you're always going to be at a at a disadvantage if you're asking large corporate clients. Small companies can you can figure things out, and oftentimes we do because we don't know if they're going to be able to pay us. Um, uh, you know, a lot of times I, especially in live events, if you're a small company, I will try to make sure that you paid me all of my costs before the event occurs, because once the event occurs, I have no. I have no leverage. So, it, you know, what I'm coming after you for later is my margin. <laughs> you know, so, um, so I don't, and so usually I try to structure it with smaller companies. And again, I, I have not, uh, you know, once you start doing large corporate, it gets pretty addicting because you just, you just know, you don't have that thought process. You don't have collection processes anymore of, you, you can try to speed things up, but you're not worried about whether you're going to get paid or not, you know, and so it's a, it's a different thing. And I would highly recommend uh, trying to find your way there. Next question. Next question in from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. I bought my first pair of powered monitors a while back, Presonus Aris E5 XT. I think they were new old stock, but they're pretty good. I have them plugged into my mixer and I haven't EQ'd them. Should I? Uh, go ahead, Jason. Oh, okay. So monitors are designed to be 
extremely monitory. They're supposed to be reference flat. So if you're going to be EQing, you're be, you'll be EQing for the space, not for the monitors themselves. And um, yeah, you can. It's a bit of an ordeal, and you may or may not like what you end up with. But yeah, it's kind of fun to try. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, your speakers are your reference. So you don't want to go too far with EQing them other than do what Jason said, which is to make adjustments, maybe the base tilt uh, for the uh, the environment that they're in. Uh, my Genelex, which is about as good a monitor you can buy, um, have little adjustments for base tilt for the low end. Yeah, I don't, I would not EQ a speaker. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I do that through my... I would keep it all flat. <laughs> I would not EQ a speaker. <laughs> like that's, it, it creates another variable that you now have to manage. You can EQ it on the way out of whatever you're putting out there. Now, if you're using it as a uh, as an entertainment device and you're just talking to an a AVR that doesn't have those controls, then maybe it makes sense. But if you're doing it for production, do not EQ your speaker. Next question. Next question from Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California. Fenwick learns Hyperdeck Shuttle Saga update. Not seen a way to show me which video I'm about to play and would love to trigger specific files off a stream deck. Button one, video one, button two, video two, for example, any ideas? Good, Mitchell. Yeah, that's the uh, the, the inherent uh, flaw in the shuttle idea. I like the idea, but the, pres the uh, execution is a problem because you get this beautiful shuttle wheel, but you really can't use it to search through files on screen because in invoking the menu button brings something up on the screen and now you have to remember to turn that menu off otherwise it's going to be part of your program i wish it just uh, would allow me to top and tail files uh and set up a playlist in some other you know configuration courtney yeah you can switch to the uh Studio Mini, Hyperdeck Studio Mini, because it has a little, it doesn't have the thing that sits flat on your desk, but uh, it's small. It has play, record buttons and everything, and it has a little knob where you can uh, select what uh, clip you're going to play in it. And the big difference is it has a display on the front of it that shows you the contents of your uh, of your playlist. So you can uh, scroll up and down the, the playlist and hit the button and play different uh, you know, select what you want to play on that separate screen without affecting the output of the uh, of the hyperdeck. Go, John. Does the shuttle not show up on the hyperdeck uh, on the HDM software, Mitch? It, no, not, yeah, go ahead. It definitely does. Um, the The issue I think that Chris is trying to solve is that he wants to be able to have a nonlinear without having to select something. This is how I read the question. He wants to be able to just hit up, have buttons on a stream deck, and he hits a button and the right video pops out um, and he doesn't have to select it in the player. And I don't think that that's possible with a hyperdeck. It's just not how it works. You queue it up and then you fire it. Um, QLab, uh, Isadora, those are all great apps. <laughs> and that's what they do. Um, so, you know, you're looking for a, a real playback system and it's going to be in software. I don't think you're going to find a lot of hardware solutions to do that uh, real easily. Um, next question. Next question in from Ike Potter in Hanover, Germany. In the new S511 and S511X uh, coming out in June 2023, Panasonic finally uses phase detection autofocus, which may also come into micro four-thirds models. In addition, LUTs can be baked into pictures and videos, enabling quick delivery. Awesome. Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a great move forward. Like I think that they're, I think Panasonic's been behind Sony for a long time uh, in this area. So I think that they're, um, you know, it looks really interesting. And if you're a 
Panasonic user. I think that it, it it's a it's a great solution there. I think it does put more pressure on on uh, Blackmagic as well to actually build something that is a real autofocus system. Autofocus is hard. Obviously, it took Panasonic this long to get there. Um, it is the big selling factor. Like if if you're in a um, when I talk to YouTubers about whether they uh, you know why they use a Sony as opposed to a you know Blackmagic 6K, the answer is autofocus. Like it's not, there's not any, they don't have any other, like they don't, they don't go to anything else. It doesn't matter. The other stuff doesn't matter to them. Um, you know, if you're, if you're doing it in standard film and standard film approach, it doesn't matter because you're going to have some kind of manual focus on it. And that's what the camera's designed for. Uh, but without that, uh, autofocus, it's, it, it's much harder. So that's, I think that the, that Panasonic has picked the right things to fix. Um, next question. Next one in from David Brady in New York, New York. Are there any OSX, OS X, OS add-ons or hidden commands that can map hotkeys to move the mouse to the center of a particular screen? On a multi-screen setup, I often struggle to find the pointer. Go ahead, Bill. Jason may have a better answer, but I haven't found one yet. I would love it. And if you find it, let me know. There is one thing, though. I believe it's under accessibility If on me, on my trackpad. If I back and forth jiggle my cursor, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until I can find it. I think that really helps me determine which of the screens I might be on to the point where the cursor goes from being, you know, two or three millimeters to being a half an inch big. And it's really easy to find. Go ahead, Jason. Uh, yeah, Keyboard Maestro, I think, can do this. Um, it immediately makes me want to just write a line of Apple script and, and put it in the stream deck. But yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, the uh, you could probably – something should do this, but I do exactly what Bill does, which is I scribble back and forth really fast, and, and the cursor gets really big so I can see what happened to it. But that's, that's definitely uh, my approach as well. Next question. James Fosline in Minneapolis, Minnesota, asking, what kinds of productions have a good use case to still use a TriCaster setup? The big advantage of the TriCaster, um, and, and it, it, you know, it can be used very effectively, um, I, I think that uh, – when it makes sense is when you're trying to do a lot with one person. So you have all the audio going in, you have a lot of, um, you have a lot of MEs that are available to you, depending on which TriCaster you're using. Uh, you've got playback, you've got all those things that are there. So, um, I think that that, you know, it, it's really hard to beat when you have one person that needs to do a lot of different things all at the same time. Uh, obviously we've had some issues where the playback has some stalls, the, you know, the, delay you know the 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 latency can be a little high like if you don't run the audio through it latency can you know be a problem you know so there's a couple things and obviously some stability issues here and there um but there's definitely a lot of people out there doing a lot of great shows with it um but usually when we see it in larger events you know so things that are going to broadcast we use we usually see the tricaster being used in a way that you really could use any switcher because they're not because they've they've dealt with so many idiosyncrasies. They just say, "Well, like I have a friend that doesn't does a broadcast, and they're like, well, we don't use the playback or the graphics. We just cut shows.' And I'm, you know, we we import those, you know, we do those downstream, you know, from that, um, and we don't, you know, we just or we cut them in because there's too many little glitches. And uh, it's like, well, why are you not using an ATEM? And he goes, "Oh." Well, got a TriCaster, <laughs> you know, but they they slowly cut all the other things out of it that made it special, you know. And so, um, but. I will say that if you have a um, a lower stress job and you have a lower budget and it's not going to change a lot or move, I find that traveling with TriCasters is, I mean, I know that they do, people do that, but it's it's a little bit, I don't think it likes to be shaken around a lot. Um, if you do, if you do those things, I mean, Leo runs Twit on the TriCaster and it works great. 
you know, so, so I think that they, you know, they, they figured that out. Um, so you definitely can learn how to make, get the most out of it. We built a TriCaster into a studio and for the most part, it worked, it worked, it worked well. It, we definitely saw some of the glitches, but it gave the client a lot more options related to moving, uh, key fills, um, you know, playback, everything else for a very small crew. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't write it off. Um, there are some, some good stuff there, um, to, to make it work. It's just that you can, the hard part is you can really buy a lot for a, for a large TriCaster at 40 grand or 30 grand or whatever, you can buy a lot of, a lot of black magic hardware <laughs> to make that go away. So that's, that's always the thing that we, we kind of keep in mind. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asking, any thoughts about the anticipated more magnetically powerful prospect of Apple's MagSafe 2.0? Do you find the current MagSafe lacking in magnetism and charging ability? I guess I would feel like the current one, um, I've, I've used it. My, my, my wife has one with, with that, and it's much, much stronger than the original MagSafe. So if they make it more stronger, I think at some point it's going to feel like it's just attaching um, you know, physically to the thing permanently. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, and I think they're going to get more popular as more car things come out. I noticed that the cases have often now started putting this big white circle on the back of some of them. This one I picked up at the Apple store when I got my uh, phone. And I thought you were talking about laptops. <laughs> so you're talking about the... the um, MagSafe, yeah. The, the MagSafe connection that powers up a phone, that's one of the uses of this whole MagSafe thing. But yeah, I, the, I, it's interesting that they've gone back to the traditional little flat MagSafe thing. I, I, people really like them. I still think there's so much coming out of the USB-C ports in terms of both power and video now that I would be iffy if they did that. But adding another port, you have an extra. So yeah, why not? Next question. Douglas Carmichael's here, and he's asking, the delivery date on my M2 Pro Mac Mini, 32-gigabyte RAM, 4-terabyte SSD, was moved up from the 28th to the 21st. Coming from a 2013 Mac Pro, what will I notice first when I turn it on? Just get the doctor, you know, get a doctor on hand, make sure that, you know, because you're going to get whiplash. <laughs> get the speed difference, you know, like it's going to, you know, your head might drop back. You just want to put a pad behind your head and you turn it on. The difference between a 2013 Mac Pro and, and the new Mac Mini that you bought um, will be dramatic. I mean, it's it's just going to, I don't have any way to say it. it's, prob- it's probably 20 or 30 times faster than what you're, what you've been using. So, uh, you know, everything should run. You should notice that everything runs a little snappier. Uh, go ahead, Jesse. And if you have multiple displays and or multiple Macs running Ventura, keep an eye on where your mouse is because it will jump from uh, not just display to display, but it can jump from computer to computer now. Yeah, that's what, and not only can you jump from computer to computer, you can you can just drag files over, which I tried to do during the show and you saw me freeze up because suddenly it, it moved everything that way. So anyway, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Bong. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. The difference between a 2013 Mac and um, and what you've ordered is the difference between the speed of light and speed of sound. <laughs> go, uh, go, next question. Peter Moore from Auckland, New Zealand. Given it's Audio Tuesday, how many Alex's or Mickey's would this setup be worth? And is there a Behringer equivalent? Enjoy, yeah. by the way, as it's awesome. And, and, and Peter, I know you haven't been here for a little while. It's, it's Graphics Tuesdays. We've moved the audio to Wednesdays. I know, I know it throws the whole thing off, but we'll still answer the question. I have no idea. I, I don't know what all those pieces of hardware are. So um, they look great. It sounds great. Um, I would love to, to have some of those pieces of hardware. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I actually had the time. Um, that's about $17,000. There you go. Fantastic. Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael. On this slate from the Rome office of Eurovision, they have phone numbers for MCR and IFB1. IFB sounds like a mixed minus, but when would you call the MCR? And what is it? Uh, what is a flex? You know, I I, I uh, was not this 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 link came in a little late, so I'm, I go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think MCR in this case is master control room. If they're talking about patches for an IFB, that would probably be comms to and from the master control room on something. Uh, I don't know what flex. I've heard flex used in five or six parts of the industry, but I don't know what they're specifically related to here. It's probably the output. You know, it's probably the flex output for, for Eurovision. So it's just saying um, we're not putting on a regular um, a regular one. It's going out to this, this output um, for there. I, I think that's probably what that means. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, what's your favorite of the current iPads? Go ahead, Jason. Uh, this is going to be a controversial one, but I love the iPad mini. Um, I just, I adore it. It's the right size for, for everything. Go ahead, Tom. For me, the right size is the 11-inch Pro. Uh, I use it practically all day long. And Bill? I use the 11-inch Pro as well, and I have found more uses for it in the last month than I ever thought possible. Uh, normally, it's sitting over here uh, to my right, and it's plumbed through HDMI in here, and that's how I bring up content. But uh, I'm in the midst of helping someone edit a document right now, so I've been pulling it out of here, using it with an Apple Pencil for markup on PDFs, and it has been Amazing. I can sit on the back patio with that, go through, circle things, use colors, erase my markings. It's just very, very, very flexible as a markup device. Uh, and I have this one. I think I've got enough cable to do it in a in a hand grip thing. So literally, it just straps onto my hand. The pencil is right on top of it. So I pull out the pencil, and I'm doing more and more text editing on my iPad because of that. Go ahead, Javier. Uh, yeah, for me also, the iPad mini is like the new iPad and the iPad Pro is my new laptop. So my actual iPad is the iPad mini because like super portable, super like I can use it to notes and everything. I'm going to have to do work like out of the field almost every time I'm using my iPad Pro. So it's like, not, like my laptop. So I have like an iPad and a bigger iPad. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I use an iPad mini uh, as the monitor on my DJI uh, mini, uh, DJI mini. Uh, drone because it fits into the remote controller just barely and it gives me a much bigger screen to see than a, a phone screen uh, when flying the drone yeah and i have the last i don't have the very newest version of it i have to admit i have the two last pros and uh, i just didn't i felt like they were still doing it what they needed to do <laughs> i didn't feel like there was enough to upgrade uh to the newest one um i have the the second to the oldest one or the three years ago one has the paper feel on it, uh, feel paper or whatever, which I love. And so I do all my uh, sketches and everything else when I'm diagramming things out on that one. And the other one I usually, I, I use a lot to proof HDR stuff like when we're doing tests here. Um, and that's the one I kind of use if I'm watching something. Um, and that's the one I kind of use, generally use for everything other than sketching. So it's the two of them kind of, I still use both of them in very separate ways. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, how do you bid on an event when artist and technical writers are part of what the equipment rental will cost? Do you encourage the client to connect you with the artist or do you get the technical writers from the artists themselves? Uh, we almost never talk to the artists. <laughs> so, so usually, I mean, sometimes we get to talk to the artists if they're small enough, but generally if, if there's a larger artist, 
uh, we will get the rider. We'll, we'll have we'll work with an intermediary uh, in the, at the for the client. Uh, we may get to talk to their manager, um, but very rarely do we talk to the artist directly. We do do have those meetings and talk to the artist directly, but usually there's a couple layers in between us and and them, and it usually is kept that way. Um, if we do enough shows, uh, then the the you know if you, I, I did a lot of shows to the point where the where the client really wanted me to just go talk to the artist about stuff, but that's not something that happens immediately. Usually you have to prove that you can be appropriate, <laughs> you know, and that, and over like 10 shows to make sure that you're not going to do anything that embarrasses anybody. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asks, the iPhone has something called live photos, which records about 1.5 seconds before and after you take a picture. How does that work? How do you use that? And how do you change a live photo to a still? Uh, go ahead, Jesse. So what's going on there is a little bit different than recording 1.5 seconds before and 1.5 seconds after. It's basically recording everything, and then when you tap the button, it sets your in and out points and extracts that as a live photo, which is really kind of like a QuickTime video file that is defined as a live photo. Um, to convert that to a JPEG, you can either uh, email it to yourself or AirDrop will receive that photo as a simple, normal JPEG. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, converting them to a JPEG can be done in Photos app as well. Uh, you can just convert it with the right click. Um, it's a bit of a gimmick. Uh, it sort of emerged out of HDR where they take, you know, eight sections of a picture and merge the best of it. And playing it back is a little difficult because not everything supports playback of it. So I often get them sent to me uh, in Twitter. Uh, text message images and that sort of stuff and I see that it's a, a live image and I've actually shot accidentally some live image stuff and then later had to convert it to JPEG or, or, or otherwise because um, I can't see any real purpose in being, unless you know it's a smile from a small kid that you're going to you know they're going to do something interesting in this short little period of time and if you have live then you get more of that time to pick which part of the picture you want. Good Bill. Yeah, exactly what he just mentioned. That's the one time I use it is you take a photo and, oh my gosh, their eyes were closed. You can go back in if you're using photos and just literally say, I want the poster frame for this image to be, you know, a third of a second before, before their eyes were closed. It can save pictures in those kind of circumstances. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Jesse said something that probably scared a lot of people. It's, it's not recording everything. It's when you open the Photos app, it records in a in a circular buffer. It takes a three-second buffer. It assigns a section of memory, and it just rotates through that three-second buffer in a loop. And so it's constantly recording three seconds and then overwriting that three seconds with the next three seconds and so on. And he's right. When you hit the button, it takes you know a second and a half on either side of uh, out of that buffer and saves it out as a file. I use it all the time and my kids use it all the time and they design around it. You know, like they, they have their, their iPhones and they design like what they want to shoot in that little three second piece where they're like looking up or they're doing something else or, you know, so the three second, um, is a, is an art form. <laughs> you know? and so, and so it's, it's only half of a vine. So, 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 you know, you, you, um, uh, if they made it seven seconds, people would just probably just shoot vines with it. Um, so anyway, or vine like things, uh, I, you know, I think that there's something about it. So when I shoot, landscapes or reference or whatever i very carefully turn it off i don't need those for those things and i don't i don't want the processing there um but if i'm shooting people i turn it on all the time you know because there is something about going back to even a portrait and you get to see that three seconds it just brings it to life you know it's just like this this moment in time that isn't very long but it's just like this and you feel the person a lot more or you feel the people that you're taking 
a lot more. I have some pictures that when it first came out, I took some pictures with my son. I still go back and look at those because they're just, you know, when they're, that it's, but I, I want the movement because it was the two of us kind of getting ready for a, a picture in front of Golden Gate or whatever. And, and it's, it's really, really magical. Like I would highly recommend turning it on when you are taking pictures of people that you care about. Um, it's just, a, it's a really great, um, great experience. Um, next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, when making templates for lower thirds and Keynote for non-techie users, what all elements can be locked? I don't know what you can lock in Keynote. I've never actually tried to lock a lot of stuff because I'm usually the person using the Keynote. If you're doing lower thirds um, and you and you have, you know, um, the, I mean, what's easier to lock is Final Cut. So if you're, I assume you're using Keynote for lower thirds to, to, to go out to a switcher or something like that. Um, and you may, um, you know, so if you're going to do that, then I, I actually don't know what you can, what you can lock in position as far as position goes. Um, so you, you kind of have to be careful of, of, of what people do with that, um, and give them careful instruction. Cause I don't, I don't think you can lock their position, those positions. It's an interesting feature problem. I know that, that a lot of folks like to use final cut and motion together because you can build those lower thirds in motion. You can export it out to, you can send them out as a generator to final cut. And then the editors can only change the text. <laughs> like they just change the text. They have to do a lot of work to move, to, to break things. And so if you're trying to do them, um, you know, the, and you, there could be a possibility of rendering those, those videos out and then just playing them out of, of Keynote if you really need that control. But of course, you lose all the flexibility that you had in Keynote. So, um, yeah, good. it's an interesting puzzle. Um, I think the problem is, is that the vast majority, probably 99.9999% of Keynote users all play back their own keynote <laughs> so they don't they don't get a lot of other things in there so i think that it's 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 not a, a really common use case next question next one in from craig kadoki in toronto canada i just discovered the instant alpha on ios photos am i the last one to find this it's labeled as remove background go ahead, dave you just might be the last guy yes uh, i've been using it for years uh, it's available in keynote uh, pages uh, anything where you're going to put a picture in you have a chance to take out a background or alpha channel any kind of color on it um uh, yeah they did change it to remove background and then i was reading somebody complaining that they lost their instant alpha and where did it go and then they had to be told that it's now been relabeled because alpha is something Graphics people know, but your average everyday camera user is not aware. Good, Bill. Yeah, I don't think you're the last at all. I think people will be discovering these kind of things as a generation. And as a matter of fact, what Alex was just talking about with live picture and how much he enjoys having that that three seconds. Um, most people are so used to a camera being click the shutter and you get one thing that they don't explore any farther than that. They just use it as it seems the human interface guidelines has made it easy to use and they don't go that extra step. Here's a place where you now know because you're watching office hours that there's an extra step you can take. You may get even more enjoyment out of it. I think that's cool. I can say for an absolute fact that you're not the last one to know because I didn't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm officially the last. I think all of us, some of us here might be the last ones to know. Um, uh, so yeah, the um, I didn't know that you could do it in photos. I mean, obviously I use it. I use Insta Alpha in Keynote all day, every day. Like that is, it's one of the most magical parts of Keynote is just being able to just grab things and just remove all the backgrounds really quickly. Um, yeah, so I, I now will open up iPhoto, or photos on the on iOS and see what's actually happening. Next question. Next one in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the latest tech cooking craze? Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, my ATEM Mini Extreme with the lights uh, all the way up. 
Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, I did find a video on uh, uh, cooking things on top of an old Intel GPU that's overclocked. So you can actually open up an old computer, overclock the GPU, take the heat sink off of it, and actually fry eggs on it. <laughs> Um, I guess that I guess that the, the thing I bought a um, for Christmas I I got a a, a June uh, oven for my for my wife we had we were trying to figure out a toaster oven she wanted an air fryer and there was a whole like back and forth of what that was and and so I got a June oven for my for my wife and and um, and a couple other people <laughs> so so anyway uh, um, and uh, it's pretty cool. Like it, it, I get, I, what's funny is I get, I get pings, um, from, uh, my, on my watch when anybody's cooking on it. So, so I was in Southern California and it pinged and said, your thing is almost done. Do you want to take a picture? And I was like, what? So, um, so anyway, but, um, I, we make everything on it now. Like, I mean, not everything, but we barely ever use our oven, our oven, oven anymore. Mostly because you can just set it and it tell. it's funny. It's just the interact. It, there's a lot of things we cook on it that we could absolutely cook in an oven, but we cook it. Uh, we cook it on the June because it gives us progress and it it pings us when it's done and we can and we can save like oh make that eight minutes longer or whatever and then save that for that for that setting again and so so anyway it's a it is a uh, um, it's it's really great <laughs> so so we really like it a lot um, but I use a lot of techie stuff I use a lot of sous vide I don't know if people can that's not new it's like seventies tech. Uh, but I have like five of them. And so I can do lots of different things in lots of different temperatures all at the same time. Someone said that that was weird, but I, I, I'm going to argue that I, um, and, uh, and then the, the newest thing that I'm playing with right now, this is what happens when you ask a question. We don't have a ton of questions. I answer them in detail. Um, the, uh, uh, chat GPT recipes. So I, I pretty much make all my soups from chat. It's like as an experiment, I make all my soups with chat GPT. So I said, give me a soup like this. Well, recently, I've been making Osh soup and I got chat GPT just to give me the, I could probably could have found the recipe, but I thought it was funny to ask, ask chat GPT to make me the recipe and it did and it's good. And I, I put my first one up on Twitter and NHK asked if I could, they could use it in a chat GPT class <laughs> in Japan. I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can use my soup in Japan. Uh, go ahead, Bill. I, I went out, it's been some years since we replaced kitchen countertop appliances. So this Christmas was that my wife and I spent some time looking around. I got to tell you the, the improvement in general in countertop technology we got a what used to be a toaster oven now it's a computer controlled multi-function multi-thing that does all sorts of different uh broil bake but uh, beyond that air fry and a whole thing and all in one thing and it was really transformative also the microwaves have changed you know they were all uh, magnetron driven earlier now they've gone to uh what's called oh what's the new technology inverter uh, and they just work better. So I, I'm really impressed with how many of the kitchen appliances are coming into the modern era. And they actually, in a lot of cases, work better than the old ones did. I, I will admit that I'm starting to only uh, get kitchen appliances that talk to my phone. <laughs> like, I just really want them to be, or they're super manual, but there's nothing in between. Like, they're either pans and pots, or they are things that talk to my phone. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, um, I, I did make an exception with them the fridge because my the really techie fridges are really low quality fridges they just they just have big screens well, and the popcorn popper of course right well, that's, that's, i mean I that's as simple manual, as it gets very manual yeah exactly next question douglas carmichael asking what does it mean when a camera cable is open and the cable mode is hybrid as shown here 
I don't know what the hybrid means. Open usually means it's not connected to the camera. <laughs> so, so usually it's, it's a CCU saying, I have no signal. I have no, I have no return, um, but I don't know what the camera mode is. All right. We are now uh, changing subjects to, uh, to our second hour, and we're going to be talking about uh, time-lapse. Uh, time-lapse is something that, that I use a lot. I'll show you a couple examples. I apologize that not, they're not all in high res. Um, they are, uh, um, and I, you probably won't be able to hear the music very well, um, but, um, but I, I thought it would be useful to show you a few examples of how I use it. Um, we use it for, a, I use it for a lot of things, um, and uh, the... Um, the main thing I do is I, I mean, I use it for both content, you'll see here, as well as oftentimes filler. So one of the things that I, I love, um, I, I have cameras and almost all the time I put them up somewhere to take, to take some, to take footage that I can, that I can put together. Um, and the, uh, the way, the way I use it is if you, it's it, time-lapse is this crazy eye candy that people will just stop and watch. So if I'm looking for something like a, the last 30 seconds of something or the last whatever that I'm trying to just fill time and I don't have, I don't have a, a specific in and out. This is like how we fill when we're 20 seconds light or 40 seconds light or something like that in an hour on, a, on an all-day show. I just throw some time lapse in there. Now, where did we get that time lapse? Usually we shot it during the show. <laughs> so, so we, um, we uh, oftentimes I'm a producer, so I don't have to, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm complaining about things and there's times when I'm really busy, but otherwise I'm just around complaining and talking about things and meeting with clients and wandering around. So what I do is I usually run around and um, I put up GoPros, I put up iPhones. I put up iPhones if it's safe. I put GoPros if it's not as safe um, to capture those. Um, and sometimes I put up other, you know, still, you know, real SLR still cameras um, to do all those things um, to grab it. But I've also done some stuff that is just um, pure content. Let me see if I can uh, show you. Um, so like, here's an example of, um, let's see. And again, this will be a little low res because I, I admit that somewhere in my in my, uh, somewhere there's a, there's a full res version of this, <laughs> but it's, it was shot, uh, almost 20 years ago. And, uh, and I, I, I have, I had the, the hard drive, um, both hard drives that kept this, this file, um, failed. So anyway, so, so this is the, this is a low res version of it. Um, let me see if I can, uh, see, cut to this. Um, so here is a, um, this is a raw stone with a little bit of work and, and here is a, um, uh, you might hear in the, through my mic, you'll hear a little bit of the, the music, but um, this is, uh, takes about four hours and compresses it down to um, about seven minutes. I chose not to make it any faster because it was really hard to understand what was going on. Now, in this case, I shot video. And one of the things I like about video is that it feels a little bit more natural than, uh, than shooting, um, you know, time-lapse would not have captured as much, you know, with this. Now, the other thing you'll notice is that there's, multiple cameras and so i'm i'm actually shooting um you know this is so you can see him working and then and i will say that if you ever have time i'll, I'll put i'll post this somewhere but you know you start to see him kind of you know work through all the bits and pieces and and it's a really fun seven minutes of watching how one of these um you know how something gets created and i love um you know for the sake of time here now you can see that we got close-ups and um and you can kind of see how the whole thing goes. Now, what we built that for was actually to sell, to sell these sculptures so that you understood what it took to actually make them, you know, and, and to show that they were made there. Um, you know, and that was, and, and here's a, you know, here's the actual like setup that we did here. So this is, um, this is him and we're, we're shooting uh, footage. This is in Zimbabwe. 
Um, it's just showing a sculpture there. So, um, so anyway, so this was uh, us shooting with a couple cameras, um, little little camcorders, nothing special. Um, now here's another uh, example here, and you'll um, let's uh, let's see, I'll go up to full here, and um, and you'll see it interspersed. So this is part of a production. So here's a here's one here, um, and uh, and you'll see it now. You'll see it moving. We were using what's called the original slider. Um, and it's a, it's a motorized slider that can kind of set those up. Um, and now this was all, the challenge here was this was all shot in one day and delivered the next day. <laughs> so this was shot at, at Dreamforce, uh, 2010. And, and then it was delivered. Literally we had to, we edited it all night and delivered it at 5 a.m. before the next, the next keynote. Um, so we had to kind of piece it together. Now this is all just regular stuff here. Um, but what you'll see is as we start to want to add energy and we want to start doing other things here, we're going to start moving into, um, uh, you know, the, the, so here's, and it's a great, you know, by now that move there is using that slider. So it's, it's moving very, very slowly as it, as it, as it works there. And so it's intermixed into the production. So it's just there to add some energy, to give you a sense of, of what that looks like. And again, the rest of this is all just, uh, more video. And I think we'll jump to a, let's see, oh, this, this takes a little while here. Hold on, let me, uh, let's see, I lost my mouse. There we go. Uh, Dave, Dave Brady, I, I, anyway, so here you have, so you kind of set it all up and then you have, you know, kind of the buildup of, of what that looks like there. So, so that's kind of another way to use it as part of a production, you know, in, in that, in that process. And, um, you know, here's another example of this for a different one. This is, this is more of a, hey, we want to cut to something, and it's just a loop. I think it was a loop. I think we built this out as a loop um, of just, just having something that was there from the location that we were in, um, and it lets you just kind of feel like you're, you're there. But this is just eye candy to go between different um, events. You know, so that's just the kind of thing that you know, we might just grab onto you know, quickly. Um, here's another one that um, I took. This is the I'm wandering around <laughs> mode. Um, and um, this is from uh, WWDC. Now, this is using a stable. I was using an Osmo, so this is a stabilized as as stabilized as I could make it there. Um, you know, uh, shot uh, for a lot of these, and you'll see me kind of moving them around a little bit and, and doing subtle framing. So it's got a little life to the camera, um, but it's uh, you know kind of gives you a sense of the of the of the event um, in a way that you wouldn't get necessarily if you. So anyway. That's a that's another little uh, another little um, time lapse um, there for for you. So those are some examples of you know how how I use time lapse. So some of those you'll notice were multi camera. Some of them are I'm actually doing a handheld. And what really helps with a handheld, obviously, is uh, a stabilizer. <laughs> so, so having a stabilizer that's there um, that helps you do it. A lot of times as we do builds, um, you know, as we build up a, 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 a you know all the trust and everything else. That can be a lot of fun to watch as well. So those are other things that we kind of focus on is trying to figure out how do we watch the build because people love watching the builds, you know, kind of come together and 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 get built out. And so so those are um, you know some some fun examples of how we use that time lapse. A couple of things um, to note is that I will sometimes shoot actual time lapse where I'm actually doing an image. Most of the time I shoot video. 
So I just shoot long form video and I use up a lot of, of memory. And the reason I do that is because I can, I can um, add motion blur. You'll know some of those had a lot of motion blur in them. We can rebuild that motion blur from the, you know, using all the extra frames. So if you do one out of one frame out of every 20, I can use all 10 frames on either end um, as motion blur, you know, using time echo and, and a variety of tools to do that. So, so there's a, you know, so it gives it kind of a more um, ethereal look, you know, and, and I was, I have to admit that I was looking for another one that I wasn't able to, <laughs> that we shot at Essence Festival where we did that. And it just made everything look like a river of people just wandering around because we had put so much uh, echo, time echo into it. Um, we were doing that. I, I don't think I'm going to, again, I, I, I had bigger plans for this morning. <laughs> I don't, I think that uh, Resolve does it. We'll, we'll do another one where I do a little video for you, but I'm not going to do another second hour to just do this. But, but the um, Resolve has, we used After Effects Time Echo for a long time where we did it and it was very convoluted and a w weird way to nest, nest things and everything else. And in Resolve Fusion, in Fusion and Resolve, I can do it with a slider. <laughs> so, so, so I was just like, as soon as I found it, like two weeks ago, that's why this, unfortunately, that's why the second hour, I, I thought, oh, we'll do this for the second hour, but I, I don't have the right footage for it that I can show you and that I, I can't show you the footage that I used it on. So anyway, so I'm, gonna, I'm working on uh, being able to try to figure that out. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I, I just love doing time lapse. Um, back in high school, I had a camera and yep. it had a single frame advance and i just got into it standing there and counting to 10 and doing another frame counting to oh, 10. that's the hard way and, yeah that's the old way <laughs> uh, so when hard. i got into super 8 i could have a uh, a release the the camera cable release you know so you, you can click the shutter by pressing on a, a plunger and right. uh, that made it easier for me to sit in a chair and, and just do this and right. every 10 seconds. And um, I got pretty good at doing it and planning for it and, and anticipating. And, and actually, part of the learning was to visualize what, what it's going to look like at the end, like how that interval accumulates over time. Uh, I went to longer form when I got to, uh, to video because uh, I worked in a company that was working on... Um, well, it was a huge Defense Department contract, but we had a couple of webcams, and the city was going to be removing a tunnel just near our building, and we had this third-floor view of it, and it was going to be a huge project. And I convinced my bosses to let me put up a camera in the west window and a camera in the north window on a tripod, you know, locked in, and put two computers in front of them and capture a frame every 10 minutes. And we knew this was going to go on for seven months. So I just let these things run. And every like every couple of mornings or on a Monday, I'd go into the folder, drag all the JPEGs out because the software I was using would only maximum to like 500 pictures or something, and I had to catch them back. Uh, I accumulated them over that seven months, and then I got uh, Final Cut Pro Studio I was using at the time to assemble it all together. And then I took out uh, frames such as uh, we had window washers one day, and they completely blocked out the picture. And you know, I took out a, a, the odd frame. And then uh, I put it all together and put it on a CD-ROM and gave it to the city of Edmonton as a document of the event. And the general contractor learned about this uh, and got to see the thing. And uh, the city was putting it into the archive and they got to see it. And then they decided to put time-lapse on all of their major projects because they saw what it could tell and how fast things are happening when, you know, when the weather changes and all that. And this one went through from like fall through to winter and then back into spring. So it was quite dramatic yeah. uh, visually. So after that, I got known for it and uh, a company building 
it's a heavy oil uh, upgrader uh, where you get um, tar sands is very difficult. And to turn it into light crude, you got to have these gigantic plants. And uh, there was a $13 billion plant being made near my city. And they had a problem they wanted to solve. The general contractor got in touch with the guys that I work for. They sent me out there to talk to these guys, and they had a problem with cranes. The project had about 200 cranes, and they weren't sure that all the cranes were in use. They were paying $10,000 a day for some of these cranes, and they weren't sure they were being used. So they asked me if there was a way to do a time lapse for like a week and just see if there are any cranes that don't move in a week. So I, yeah, I put uh, on an ATCO trailer, uh, they're called ATCOs because that's the company that makes these construction trailers. We put this thing on the rooftop on its on a stand, you know, protected it from the environment, land cable into the uh, ATCO trailer's desk and put a laptop there for a week, gathered together the pictures, assembled them together, played them back, and they were gleefully reporting back that they fired 50. Uh, there were 50 cranes being parked there because they were not being used. And uh, when a crane operator doesn't have a next job, he just kind of leaves his crane where it was. And this is a huge deal with gigantic projects. Think Olympics and, you know, major things like that, where there's so many cranes, you can't track it. So they were really happy with that. Uh, as a result of that, I got asked to do a time lapse for a pharmaceutical company here uh, who were having to build a, a vault to keep their cannabis in. And the Health Canada people have strict requirements of how this vault should be built. And the guys came to me because they knew I did this kind of stuff. Can you mount a camera? So I did. I got it, my uh, GoPro 4 out and mounted it up high in the construction area. Uh, the vault has to be separated from the walls. It has to be made of certain materials at certain layers. And it's a long-term construction project. They thought they could build it in a week. It took three months. Uh, so when I edited that, I'd take out all the night stuff and all the days they were not working and power outages that were in there and all the rest. But we got a 27-minute time-lapse of this thing at 72 to 1, and it looked gorgeous. It had time code on it to show how long the process took, and it had every file that I had recorded on the other side. So legally, they could track back and prove that the, there was no falsification going on here or skipping over things. It, it was the kind of work that I just loved to do. And just last spring, I did one for a landscaping company where they had a whole replacement of a person's backyard. And I mounted a camera in the house and then had this thing recorded for three weeks. And I, I gave that one to them as well. And they're so pleased with it. I had previous video work with those guys. Yep. And when they found out I could do a time-lapse, that was, that was the fun part. I love the idea of doing a setup. I've never actually shot you know, a whole setup. I haven't had the yeah. fortune to be in a large scale setup, but those are always fascinating to see a three camera put up and then a lighting and all the rest. And then a yeah. takedown at the and, end. And Just fascinating. And one of the things that we, that, that is fun, if you get multiple cameras um, and then you shoot really high res, you're able to zoom in on certain areas. So one of the things that, that you want to think about with time, time lapses, do you, you might want to zoom in on a certain area or zoom back out. So it seems like it would be overkill to shoot in 6k or 8k or 12k um, footage, uh, but it, it gives you an enormous palette to kind of work on. Go ahead, Courtney. Mm -hmm. I noticed in one of the earlier videos you showed there that there seemed to be a more granular approach to the time lapse. In other words, it would be like four frames at normal at normal uh, frame rate between the frames, and mm -hmm. then a jump of that same amount of time, and then another four frames, and then another four frames with gaps cut out of the middle. Is that have you done that in software? Did you set yeah. it up to do that? 
typically we do that and we do time, speed ramps. You know, so speed ramps in, mm-hmm. in a variety of pieces of software. Now, that's a little harder to get the kind of motion blur that we like on the speed ramps because they just tend to move fast and there's not an interpolation that's kind of built into it in the same way. But you can definitely do that. So what you do is you basically just say, I, and I do that a lot. So I, when I'm doing how-tos, you'll see me start to do something and then you'll see it go really fast and then you'll see it slow down again. And in Final Cut, that's super easy. <laughs> like you just add, there's a, there's, a, there's a speed ramp that you add to it and it's literally like a little layer on top of your, um, on top of your thing and you just kind of squeeze it in and out and you move it in and, 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 and you can set that really, really fast and easy in Final Cut. So I, I do it a lot. Um, to, to, I might take a eight-minute tutorial on something and squeeze it into three or even into two minutes. Where, But what I find is that you need to see it go at regular speed for a second and then it speeds up. And then I need to slow back down so you can see how I finish it. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in, in the middle that's just like, and now we need the bread. You know, it's like, it's like, because you don't need to watch me do that at real time, if that makes sense. There is a feature uh, in Final Cut for flowing that together too. Like after you accelerate something and, and shrink it. And it and yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it. what it, we just use and it. You, and it has a yeah, ramp let out, it ramp in, ramp out. Render, render yeah. with inner frames, yeah. Yeah, I go ahead, Mitchell. Of the stuff that you showed, I think that the most dramatic and neat looking was where you had it on a slider, where the slider was moving at one speed yeah. and people were flowing like water around all of the uh, the landscape items. To me, that really says time lapse, and it's a beautiful thing. And you get that with uh, echo and motion blending. Well, so the the, the motion blending um, again is is something that is a. Um, Echo, you know, time echo and, and motion blending is something that 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 you you can add to it. Um, the 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 move now the move on our case you can do that if you have a high res version you can set that in there and just move it across. It doesn't have the parallax, you know. So so what we do oftentimes is is actually um, the the what they call the the original slider that we used is beefy. It's really heavy and thick and. And it's um, the guy. The guy's pretty bitter about all the other sliders. He's out of L.A. and he built it, and he's he's pretty bitter about it. But everybody else is building sliders. That's why it's called the original slider. Anyway, but he does build the best sliders, and so there it is a really really um, uh, beefy one. And we ran it up to thirty feet long. So so you can run these these sliders. You can get little sliders that give you a little bit. And what you have to do to do a time lapse that makes a difference, you'll notice. In one of them, there's a little bit of grass in the front that creates that parallax and shows you that we're doing something there. And so, so the um, so having something in the foreground really helps you feel you understand that we're going past something. We're not just moving across it. And yeah, you, the cheap way to do it is to shoot at high res and move it across, and it totally works most of the time. But it's a flex. Like people who know what they're looking at, it's really a flex to have a big old slider and then just kind of work, you know, work across it. And so it might take. I think some of those were half an hour, hour, two hour, you know, time lapses. Um, you know, if you do it in a city, by the way, you do need permits. <laughs> some of, the, some of those new sliders also allow you to control the camera head. Oh, yeah, So yeah, you no. can do a pan or a tilt or move yeah, in on something that's 100%. interesting. All of the, a lot of these all have that so that they'll, they'll spin up and they'll do, you know, they'll, they'll do anything that you can do pan tilt um, in addition to moving across. And you can pre-program all of those to make that work. And, and if you really are, you know, want to do it, and I will say that um, there are, it's just a really relatively easy way to add production value to something that isn't very expensive for you to do. Even just a fixed camera in a corner when they're setting up some some event, um, capturing that is something that a client or a viewer will think is valuable. Like they'll just be like, oh, that was awesome. You know, um, and it didn't cost you very much. I have a bunch of GoPros 
we had all these GoPros because we we're doing all this 360 footage in t- 2015 before there were any real 360 cameras. We were building 360 rigs and I had three of them. So I had, at, at one point I had 18 GoPros laying around <laughs> because I had these three rigs. Um, and so we just took them out when we, and we, and we just used them for, for time lapses when we were, when we, once we started buying Ozos and stuff like that. And so the, um, uh, and, and people just love them, you know, they don't have to be, you know, you then once you get past that, you start to do, you start to flex, you start to use the sliders, you start to use, um, you know, being able to move them around, you change, you know, you can even do things where you motorize it, you can change the focus and, and zoom. So you can zoom things in and change, you can do a rack. I mean, so we've done stuff with, we did this one with these little ants. Uh, it was for a nature thing where we racked across it over long periods. So you see all the ants moving really fast and you see them come into focus. And anybody who does um, uh, stop or, or, or does time lapse looks at that and goes, whoa, you know, like, like they, they know that you did something. You, you, you stepped outside of like what they're used to, to looking at there. Um, uh, so uh, Edelchrome makes a lot of ra- really good controls, um, you know, that you can use for those kinds of things. Um, so they they have a lot of sliders and and so on and so forth. So those are those are other things to look at. And, and again, you can get really. Um, there's little things you can do. Like Edelchrome makes a, um, you know, it's a and like I can't think of the name of it right now. But the accordion that you can the accordion lens that you can you can put on it. So um, you know that the old fashioned lenses. And I can't think of the name for some reason right at the moment. So you get this really short depth of field, and then you can bank it. So you get this kind of odd, and it makes everything look like little models. And then you then you then you add a time lapse to it and it's it's uh it's useful. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Um, you know, you would think that the uh, the construction industry would be an ongoing uh, source of business for this. It no longer is because just about every construction company I know around here anyhow, they all have their own uh, setup for doing that. And I think there's a couple of websites that um, cater to that use. Yeah, it it depends on where they're, you know, it's still sometimes a service that they want rather than than something else. So construction companies still buy into those things if, if it's not too expensive to do. One of the interesting things, I did a bunch of time lapse at a construction site. And one of the interesting things that you do is you see things in a construction process that you will not see in real time. So uh, one of the things we noticed was that, and, and you kind of figure out what to do with it. It opens up all kinds of conversations. We noticed that one person, his tool case was across the other side of the work site. So every time he needed a tool, he'd walk over and and grab it and so you don't see you don't notice that during the day but you do in a time lapse because you see this guy going like this the whole time and you're like why is he doing that and and so at first there was a temptation to move the tool site uh closer to him you know like and we asked him like do we you want to we noticed that you're walking a lot back and forth and it's slow it, it was slowing down production, which is why why, why that, the, the supervisor wanted to move it closer to him. But he said, that's the only walking I get all day. <laughs> like, so his whole, he had built, he had put it, it turned out it would, that we, he had put it there for, for a good reason. And no one noticed until we did a time-lapse. You know, we kind of, I admit, we kind of ruined everything for him because uh, no one noticed that it was less efficient, but it was more pleasurable for him to do it. And and so it was, it was a complicated, it, it creates new complicated problems. Go ahead, Bill. I was just going to say, even as some of these higher end features are actually even getting down into the lower end sliders. I had a job that I need a particular shot from. So I took a look and for under $300, newer has a motorized slider. And the interesting thing about it is it has a little geared track that runs down the center of the slider. And that's connected to the pan, a little pan head in there. So if you set your camera up at an object at one end, as it traverses the slider, it changes the geometry of the lens just a tiny bit so that it keeps whatever you centered in the center. 
And that's one of those things where it's rather than a parallel track, it's a little bit of an arc around things. Interesting how much they're doing. That's motorized for under 300. You go, Courtney. I don't know if there's software now that does it, but uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, I wrote some software to time warp that would uh, warp time across the frame. And this is, I can show you what it looks like. Here's a, a guy sitting in my office and uh, time is warped from the top of the frame to the bottom of the frame so that you can see when he spins around in the chair, the bottom half of the frame is one second behind the top half of the frame. This <laughs> creates some pretty bizarre effects when you zoom. And uh, uh, I was wondering if you've seen any soft, any uh, uh, plugins or anything that does this in any modern editorial software, because I had to write this uh, modification yeah, there, myself. There's an effect that does that, and I just can't think of what it is. I don't think it's built into the software, but I, I want to say that Neat makes one, but I'm not 100% sure that it makes the software, but I thought there is a software that will let you delay that. And I know it's kind of like built into TikTok and other things like that. So it, it definitely uh, is an effect out there. I, yeah, but oh. I don't know exactly. I can't remember. I, I think I, you know, it's one of those things that I play with and I go, that's really cool. And then I never use it. So I just, it just kind of disappears into the ether. Um, and what's weird is anything that's moving is, it depends on the direction of time warp. Like if you shoot at cars on the street, you know, cars going to the left are foreshortened. And cars going to the right are elongated, and all the rest of the background stays normal if the camera's locked. Right. So it, it creates some pretty bizarre time warp. And it's what was used in the uh, old, uh, kind of a slit scan technology it was used in the old uh, Star Wars to make the uh, taking off into warp speed where the ship stretches out and then catches up. That same kind of time warp. Yeah, the, uh, that was the... Um the way I did that was to put, to put a center, put the uh, center and then scale it to it, you know, to, to, to that. But, but back when they were doing it physically, yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. That's cheating. <laughs> it was, it worked great. You set, you set the center point out there and then you scale it out and then you scale it from the center point and it fires forward. Anyway, uh, it took me a little while to get it right. Um, next question. Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio asking, if you had a couple of bad frames and pictures creep into your time lapse, what tool and technique do you use to smoothen out? Uh, the editor, <laughs> you know, like that's the, the, you know, that's what we, uh, you know, tend to, tend to use there. Uh, yeah. Um, go ahead, Dave. Well, no, I'm going to agree with you. Every frame is examined in the work that I do. And, uh, as I mentioned before, I mean, I had to take out a, a person washing the windows who blocked my camera twice, one camera and then the other. Uh, but also in every work that I do, I have to remove the odd thing. And I have this wonderful picture of two drywall guys having an argument and it lasted three or four frames. And I felt they weren't allowed to be in the video because they weren't part of what I was shooting. So I had to take them out. But that's partly what I do is I go through it frame by frame and you can do it rather quickly. You can go, you know, scroll through until you see something that's not right. You can scroll back. But it is uh, sort of a, a, an obligation of you to not to include somebody in the picture who isn't supposed to be there or, you know, find that you've got 10 black frames that you didn't notice before. Yeah. Next question. Next question coming in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. When doing a time lapse on 360, what is your go-to tool for reframing and exporting time lapse? On 360... I've never shot a 360, I think, so I couldn't really say. I think that if you're talking about Insta360s, the Insta360 software is the the thing that most people are using to do that, uh, or at least to export it out. And again, what I would be doing is I would export it all out. I would shoot video in the Insta360, and then I would 
frame it all up the way I want to frame it. And then I would export it out and then do the time lapse somewhere else. You know, as far as like speeding it back up again, that would probably be the way I would approach that. Um, next question. Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Boinks has iStop Motion, a stop motion for iOS. Is there other iOS time lapse apps out there? Uh, go ahead, Dave. Well, iOS actually in its photo app has a very good time lapse feature. So uh, you can use that. Unfortunately, it uh, has a fixed rate that you can't change the uh, intervals. Uh, if you want to be able to change intervals and control your exposure and that sort of stuff, uh, Filmic Pro actually has a very good time lapse feature in it too. Uh, otherwise, I usually just shoot all my stuff and then through editing, smooth it all out. Yeah, I mean, using something, the big thing is being able to, um, I find the most important part of it is, um, whether, no matter what you're using, is being able to fix the aperture. Um, you know, fixing aperture, it, it flittering uh, doesn't seem like that much when the day opens and closes, but it really is a problem um, that, it, you know, so when you, I don't use, there is a time-lapse feature in the iPhone and I learned not to use it pretty quickly. And I just realized that my the current phone doesn't have it because I was using an older phone that I, I blanked out. But there are some time-lapse apps that give you a lot more control and I apologize that I don't have it set up set up right now, but you there. Are, I would never use the time lapse in the iPhone in the photo thing if it mattered because it it flickers. That's the biggest problem. Um, next question. Alton Christensen in New York, New York. What's the best marketplace for time lapses to sell as stock footage? I would probably say iStock. I mean, I think that you know, um, I think that's probably the best place to right now to sell most things if you can get in the main thing is is that with iStock you have to really reach a certain level so you have to just make sure that you're really producing but if you produce really high qualities time stock um uh, time lapses that are you know you know really shot at a with really you know again either film time lapses they're not going to care whether you have blur or not but that is a way to stand out is to put all that blur in so i would shoot um video with 6k you know with a 6k camera or something like that in log and then really correct it and then put it back together if I wanted to sell something. And I think that you could probably find a market for that. Absolutely. Next question. Joe Kidd in the Bay Area of California. I'm using, I'm used to making time lapse from sequences of still images. How does the video capture based approach create or enhance the desired ethereal effect? Which additional data are being utilized by the software? It's the frames, <laughs> the frames, you know, the in-between. So uh, most of these are taken in one every one every second. Now the, now, the problem is, is that if you leave it there for the, the thing, the advantage of taking it with stills is you can leave it there for 24 hours and you still have footage. Uh, so the hard part is if you're doing this, you really need an enormous amount of footage or, or I mean, enormous amount of storage um, to, to manage this. Um, you know, if you're going to shoot it at a high resolution and with video, but the, so that's the downside is just, storage um, of this of the process that you're capturing a lot of video um, we would take you know the biggest sd cards we could put into a gopro and then capture them at the time i think it was 128 gigs or 256 gigs and and, uh, and we'd fill them up in a couple hours with video we could have run for days um, with with just a time lapse um, so you're taking it's a lot less data the advantage is, is you have all those frames to go back to to blend um, so if you're no matter what you're using, whether it's Premiere, After Effects, or Final Cut, or, or Resolve, you have you have the ability to blend these over time, and uh, create these kind of you know create recreate the motion blur and decide how much motion motion blur you want, um, and that really makes a big difference um, in giving you control over how it looks, and it just takes it to another level. You saw with the people running you know moving around in the, the thing that that motion blur that ethereal kind of feel is something that most time lapse doesn't have. 
then you can kind of take it to another level there. Um, next question. Alton Christensen from New York, New York, asking, what are the advantages of using Resolve or Fusion for time-lapse with raw frames as source material? Yeah, I'm, I am trying to build that back out again. I found a piece of footage that I might be able to use here. Um, but the main thing is, is that it's got a, in Fusion, there is a blend, a frame blend function, which is really nice where it'll just start blending those frames back together um, as you speed them up. Um, and so it, it's a, it's kind of a nice, nice effect there. Um, so, um, but that's, that's the advantage there in the past, you know, that, um, what you want to be able to do is have something that's going to grab frames on either side and then blend them back together. Next question. From Brody Hefner in New York City, B&H Explorer provides a nice basic intro with time-lapse tips and equipment advice. What are some other resources for more advanced or creative time-lapse use cases? Um, I don't, I have to admit, I have never looked at anything. I've been doing time-lapse now for 20 years, and I've never really looked at any resources. <laughs> like, we just keep on... What typically happens is we shoot a lot of time lapses and we look at it and, we, and there's just a whole lot of like, hmm, that would have been cool if I, there was one I, I don't have here that I didn't show you yet or that I, you know, shot it. And then of course it was another Salesforce event and, and then someone put a sign up in front of it. <laughs> you know, like you were just like, hmm, you know, and so, um, and so, uh, so those are the kind of things that you see often of people kind of putting together there. So uh, I, you know, I think that the most important thing is to think about the things that we just talked about here, what's possible, you know, with sliders, with uh, movement and so on and so forth. And then, um, and then really going out and doing it and, and, you know, and capturing them. And I think that you'll find things that, you know, we'll, we'll come back and have this conversation. This is the idea today is just to spark some ideas um, that maybe we go back and talk about this later <laughs> and, uh, uh, and people will have played with it a little bit. We might do some labs as well. Go ahead, Dave. Well, one of the things I've always wanted to do was a construction project of a tall building or something. Just see the whole thing assembled like a, a Meccano set. And I've never been, had a client who let me do that yet. Uh, but I have sort of approached some places and, uh, one of the companies that got a job for this was building our, our new arena for a hockey uh, program and uh, they had a whole two years of building this thing and collapsed it down to about 30 minutes. So I was very jealous of those guys for getting that project and not me. <laughs> Next question. Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, Texas asking, has anyone done any successful time lapses with drones? If so, what would be the best practice? Go ahead, Javier. I haven't done it myself, but I'm going to plug a friend that I'm going to just paste the his channel in, in the chat. Yeah, his channel is called Post and Fly. He's a great drone flyer and he has a lot of tutorials. Uh, he, he does a lot of hyperlapse and uh, uh, let me, for example, this one. He does a lot of like uh, CT and um, uh, like traffic and a lot of super, uh, super interesting things with the drones in hyperlapses and time lapses and he has all of these tutorials on how to do it with using different apps and different uh, like from minis to like pros so you should check it out i think he has a great tips there next question from bill uh, bill davis in san diego california when attempting time lapse on cloudy days how does everyone adjust exposure and post for consistency go ahead mitchell 
I think we talked about this a long time ago, but the idea would be if the photos are for like a high speed uh, over a long period of time, wouldn't it be cool to have the uh, the software speak to a website that had the weather and it knew where the sun position was at that particular time of the year uh, and whether or not it was cloudy or not? Uh, that would be really cool if you could tie them together and make a perfect uh, time lapse out of it. Go ahead, Dave. I have an app that tells me sunrise, sunset in my time zone and uh, seasonal changes and even moonrise and moonset. So I've used that for many years in photography and video. Uh, it also, uh, you know, tells me how, how much of the twilight I'm going to have. When I'm planning one, I try to find out what azimuth the sun is going to be on so that it doesn't go right into my lens and burn out the whole thing. And secondly, yeah, you you have to have uh, software that's going to fix and lock your exposure levels and just let the dark be dark and let the bright be bright. But you have to have that kind of planning to know how long you're going to do it. And certainly for the landscaping one, I mean, it'll rain one day and nobody's going to work and it's going to be bright, sunny the next day. And then they'll have a whole thunderstorm move, move through and then it's back to sunny again. So I was glad in that case to have a lock on, on my exposure because it looked whole much better. And also I got to see a whole tree go, go into bloom and then lose all its blossoms at the same time. So it was quite, quite dramatic. But I, I think what is really important is to have the fixed uh, exposure because you want light and dark to happen as part of the, the show. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I, I bring it up because I had a client once who wanted me to do the uh, do a time lapse of the front of their building. And I didn't realize it at the time, but they really were looking for traffic patterns under the portico. So as I watched it back and I realized that when the clouds came out of the sun and they had strong sunlight, uh, the fixed exposure meant there was a huge range of contrast. If I had done it on variable exposure and set a sensor or, or poked the the exposure uh, rectangle under the portico, I would have been in good shape. But what happened was a lot of the time lapse was dead because when the sun was bright outside, the aperture closed down and under the portico where they wanted to see things, they couldn't see things as well as they wanted to. So it was just one of those weird things where you're trying to figure out whether you need fixed aperture or an adjustable aperture based on what the client needs. I thought maybe somebody had some tricks for dealing with that in post without masking and doing a whole bunch of bring up the under the portico shot there because we can't see what's going on. Next question. Bob Sturdivan from San Antonio, Texas. Bob asks, when shooting time-lapse and weather is moving in and you want to capture it, what equipment do you recommend to protect the camera and not get into the picture? Yeah, go ahead, uh, Dave. I only had to do that once, and I really just had a sort of camera bag plastic uh, all around it, and then you know, gaffer taped it around the back of the lens area was more of a webcam than it was a camera, so I had to be very careful about that. And then I protected the cable as it went into the window. But that's the only exterior one that I've had that, that was uh, out long enough for weather to affect it. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. And whenever you're in a hotel, always pick up the shower cap because it's a handy little device. You can put it in your photo bag and it'll cover a camera anytime. Next question. Bill Davis, San Diego, California, and here on the panel, what approaches do people use for powering time-lapse field rigs over days, weeks, or even months? Go ahead, John. 
Axis, A-X-I-S.com. They, they're the leaders in web cameras, um, industrial uh, type of web cameras. All of their cameras have web servers built in into the cameras, and they have special software specific for time-lapse. Tons of the construction sites use these cameras. They're fantastic. I did all the – my whole entire rocket build was time-lapsed on an Access camera. I just have to put the footage in the editor now. <laughs> uh, Mitchell? Long-term stuff, uh, I would use solar along with the battery. I go ahead, Dave. I, anytime I've had to, it's I've had USB with power, you know, block. And uh, I took the panel off my GoPro to be able to put that and the video cable in at the same time. So, Courtney? Large sealed lead acid batteries that are, you know, uh, 7 amp to 20 amp. They can keep it going for a month or so, and they hold up pretty well in different uh, temperatures, so they work pretty well. Just make sure they're fully charged before you put them in. Yeah, and a lot of the ones that I've done that only have to be five or six hours, a lot of times we just you know uh, use anchors or other other those kind of batteries. There are some that will attach. They actually have mounts that will attach to your to your tripod, or they'll there's something you can screw onto the tripod and it'll lock like a V mount. And we've used V mount batteries with D taps. Uh, next question. Next one from Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Jeffrey asks, I've done selfie time lapses, which are really hard to keep standing, sitting still, and looking at the camera without moving and blinking. Any tips for future selfie lapses? All right, go ahead, Dave. I think Jeffrey has to talk to JJ uh, because JJ did a putting a cup down time lapse in the assembly of a rack-mounted bit and he's shown that a couple of times uh we almost included it in the killer show but he uh he purposely took a drink from a cup and put it down and he and i think it took him 15 minutes so it's a fixed camera it's not a selfie camera but that's his trick for getting something to look normal in time lapse Our next question tom ferguson in phoenix arizona what diy gadgets have you used for time lapse good tom uh, the mechanical kitchen timer. You can mount a little GoPro plate on the top of it or uh, perhaps mount your iPhone on it and then you can get a 90-degree pan in 15 minutes. That's awesome. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, asking some assembly required. What are some of the best methods, subjects, and ideas to teach using time-lapse videos? Yeah, so, um, you know, the... the um the first thing to do is a tripod, like literally just a tripod, just go out and shoot things and see how they work and see what happens. I, I think that you, um, you know, oftentimes um, people make it more complicated, but I would start shooting those things. And especially at a campus, uh, usually you can get up on a high window and just shoot people walking around and take a look at it. Uh, shoot it with video, shoot it with stills, shoot it with, you know, a couple different things there. Um, that's the first thing to do. The second thing to do is to use something like, um, uh, you know, if you can get a stabilizer like an Osmo, it's great because you can kind of walk, as you saw some of the footage that I showed, you can kind of walk through things and walk past things and people are all rushing around you and so on and so forth. And that's kind of a, a pretty cool effect. And so those are the first two that I would, the, that I would do. Again, then you can start doing things like uh, cars work really well, cars and planes. Um, you can, you can shoot out of a plane window or shoot out of a car window and, um, uh, and then, and then figure out ways to put that back, back together. Um, and, and that, that works really well too. So those are things that, that are relatively easy before you start getting into sliders and drones and, you know, a lot of other things like that. Go ahead, Dave. 
I think I'll go with the last half of the question where it's to teach using time-lapse videos and, and they become incredibly popular on YouTube where people speed up something that takes a very long time. Like Alex mentioned earlier, you don't want to see somebody make the whole bread. Uh, so you just zip through that and zipping through moments which are longer and take longer is where time-lapse for teaching anyway is very helpful. Uh, next question. Next question in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Would it be possible to do a time-lapse Matterport or equivalent that showed a whole house or building changing over time? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that, that happens there is, is that people do use these in construction to, to capture a lot of these things. So, the, um, so they, they use them in construction to, um, uh, uh, to capture the movement of those things. And now they're starting to scan the locations every night. And so, you know, as that scanning goes through, um, you end up with a lot of things that, are, that you're capable of, you know, kind of capturing there. Uh, yeah, go ahead, um, go ahead, Courtney. I think Google had a uh, an app or a part of uh, their Street View that lets you time shift. Uh, so they would put together uh, Street View images from different uh, you know years, and you can crossfade between the the different years of the same uh, image. So it's kind of interesting, like that. Or maybe it's Google. Maybe it's a satellite imagery that they let you time warp across uh, a large collection of time captures uh, over a long period of years. So yeah, I think it's available from Google or Google Earth, maybe. Next question. Jeffrey Powers, Madison, Wisconsin. Define time-lapse, hyperlapse, motion-lapse, and stop-motion. Go ahead, Dave. I'll attempt this. Time-lapse is easy. You're just uh, shortening a period of time. So you the time lapses as, as you watch. Uh, hyperlapse is just, I think, faster, uh, covering more amount of time, more amount of long ver version time collapsed, even more compressed. Uh, motion lapse is what we've been seeing with the sliders, uh, where you do a time lapse to where the camera's in motion. And of course, stop motion is animation. So it's time lapse using models or figures or uh, armatures to have something move and uh, imitate the movement by stop motion. So time-lapse is stop motion. It's just capturing every other or every 15th or every 100th frame. And we have one more question, I think. Yep, there it is. Uh, Tom Ferguson, Phoenix, Arizona. One more time with DIY time-lapse or tame-lapse or yeah, whatever. Oops. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Tom. <laughs> Take that same mechanical timer tie a string around it, and have it pull your roller skate while your camera's sitting on it. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, that. and uh, I was just trying to... This is the... That little kitchen timer thing is, uh, is brilliant. I just got to say, I never would have thought of that. But yes, mount a thing on it or use it to pull something. Yeah, and you could connect it to your tripod and have it pan, you know. And I'm going to do a real quick screen share. I apologize. My other computer wasn't doing what I wanted to do. Um, but this is, this is a, a quick view of this. Um, it still needs a little bit more work. Um, but let me, um, let me show you here. I jump to top three. You guys see that right now? No. Uh, let's see if they cut it into the show. I don't know if they can get to it. 
Oh, no, because I haven't hit share yet. Yeah, it's not sharing yet. I don't use share very often. So you see that there? Um, yes. So this is this is the now this is something that you know I've started to, to play with here, and you can see you know I'm starting to grab the other frames you know in there, and this is what's called motion trails, and uh, it is in um, it's probably all I need to show you in this show. This is what inspired me to do the show, so I want to make sure I could get to it. It took a lot longer last night to find the 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 time the high, the time lapses that I had done. So um, anyway, it's in. Um, uh, temporal resolve effects temporal and you have uh, motion trails and this is going to start grabbing other frames and blending them into that and you have you know a fair bit of control about how they drop off and how they come together um, and um, and so you can see how you can start to add some motion blur here this was actually um, to give you a sense of it and, and this can be much smoother than this I'm just doing it really quickly here for you um, but this is a, I shot this in Cambodia um, and the the interesting thing here let's see if i if i pull this together here you can see me kind of pull that out if i if i you know i can create you know and you have you know a fair bit of control over how this how this works now one thing that i learned trying to set this up for you is that um i sped it up and then did motion trails and i got to do it the other way around i got to do the do do the motion trails and then speed it up um and so um so i'm going to work on that next um but what you can see here is this kind of um uh you know if i go back to here now this was just uh literally shot out of a uh this time well this is video but it was shot out of a sunroof <laughs> you know you can hear it you might be able to hear it going here but this is just um you know going through you know this was driving through uh you know driving through cambodia <laughs> i was on my way to Badambang, and just in the, the the car the car that i that I had happened to have a sunroof. So I just took an Osmo with my phone and put it out there. I'm really glad that I still have my phone because we were, uh, there was a lot of wind. Um, so I was a little, little concerned about that, but it, it, it stayed in. Um, anyway, uh, uh, next question. Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, Texas. Is there a camera or a controller that would allow shooting in bracketing mode for time-lapse? Uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, Dave. I, I haven't found one. Um, bracketing would be interesting but it's hard to anticipate if you're not standing next to the camera the whole time so if you wanted to bracket an event because i don't know like welding or something where you knew there was going to be brightness but you would never be able to anticipate when the exposure is going to change good uh, uh, bill yeah the external intervalometer approach with a dslr that has bracketing feature might work i've never tried to do that but you just caused me to think about it and it might be a really good technique to set it up to do a stop above or a stop below or both and have it take three pictures instead of one and just set the intervalometer up to trigger the shutter could be interesting yeah we do we do a lot of bracketing for hdr and in those cases we have been able to animate it all i mean to automate it all with gigapan so the gigapan control head control and i don't know been a long time since i've used gigapan <laughs> or even used that word but i know that we spent a lot of time doing it and because it can control any setting so you have pan tilt i've never used a gigapan on an, on an, on something that would be moving but you probably could and it, you can say i want to i want to go to every single output and i want to take nine exposures or five exposures of those things um so then i can then i'm gathering all of that data to compress that back down into a tone map um, and so Gigapan will absolutely, um, will absolutely do that. But again, I haven't used Gigapan for a long time. Next question. 
Next question in from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Is there a good business model for adding time-lapse to your video production offerings? Uh, it makes the client feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> so, so like it, and it makes your productions easier. Um, I will say that it, it is, uh, it's, it adds so much production value for so little effort, you know, like throwing something in there when you, when you get to something. The other thing is, is that I have time lapses that I couldn't show you. I was trying to, I went through a lot of time lapses last night, a couple hours of time lapses to get for, for the handful that I showed you. And most of them were stuff that I didn't feel like I could probably show. Um, but, but the, but for those shows, um, lots and lots and lots of, of, uh, you know, I've used these in lots of pre presentations showing what we did and what we did and, and fill it in between things while I'm talking. Um, so just being allowed to do them, if you use them for the broadcast, it's okay to shoot them. If you use them for yourself, maybe not. <laughs> so, so, so the, uh, so think about being able to collect them and using them in the broadcast as an excuse to gather all these time lapses that you'll use for, uh, kind of, uh, non-public marketing of yourself and your meetings. So, um, so, so those are things that are kind of useful to, uh, in, in those areas. The, um, I think that, uh, I love using them. The big problem with live events is people don't think about the breaths that you need to take. So um, you need to take breaths when you're doing stuff. You need somewhere to go that doesn't have a hard in and doesn't have a hard out that you can just go to if you need a moment that's still interesting for the viewer. And we use the time lapses all the time. So we have, um, in a lot of events, when we have those time lapses, I put them on a loop. There's like a 10-minute loop of time lapses that are sitting there, or a five-minute loop or a three-minute loop of time lapses that are just running. It's a Mac, little Mac Mini that's just sitting there just playing out these. And I probably use a HyperDeck now. I can cut to it and um, and I can I just know that if I need to get away and I need to sit for a second or I need to, a spacer or I need something else to put together, I can very quickly and easily just kind of move that, you know, do that quickly. So I, I think that um, uh, it's it's really valuable as a value add. I, I don't necessarily, I have never charged a client uh, for them. I just add them to what I'm doing. Um, next question. Next question from Paul Wallace. How about a time lapse of some office hours folks during the show showing how they move around? Uh, Mitchell. Um, you first, Paul. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Bill. That would be the most boring time lapse in the world because the Fenwick Framer has us all in there. So mine would look like vibrating. Yeah, I just vibrate in place. My eyes would dart around. I'd grimace and grin, and th that that would be it. It would be utterly boring. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, next question. Next question. Next question from Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. How can time lapses uh, of a fair be done when you're not allowed to show people's faces? Are there tools to blur faces automatically? Uh, go ahead, Dave. I haven't come across any automatic ones, but it is possible to mount a camera at an angle where you don't get a face-on look on somebody. So if you mount it fairly high up on a pole or in a fairground, you have some elevated structures, you can put it up high and then you're looking down on the people and not in their face. Uh, that way it's easy to suggest that you can't recognize somebody. When I did the vault thing, I picked a very high angle. And the other thing I did in that case was I put the camera up early so the people got used to it being there and started to ignore it. And that was very helpful because a lot of the early stuff, I have guys staring up at the camera wondering what's up there. And that's what will happen if your camera's visible. And that would be the thing is either disguise it so that nobody looks at it uh, and also mount it in a place where it's not gonna see faces too much. 
Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, and there's a Melissa impression here, I think, a little bit about what you can can and can't do in public. And now, granted, uh, conventions sometimes are on private property. That's a different set of rules there. You might need product uh, permission, uh, a location release from the uh, entity. But if you're at something like a state fair or something like that, that is generally considered public space. And as long as you're not focusing on people or making commentary on people, just a background thing. And nobody's ever gotten in crowd scenes releases from every single person in a crowd in a public space that walks through. It's just generally considered to be okay unless you're really focusing on them and something other than just a natural walkthrough. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and Google wrote some AI software for their street view that would automatically detect faces and license plates, and it automatically blurs them out uh, in all the street view photos that you see now. So you'll see as you travel down a street view on Google uh, Streets or Google Maps, uh, you'll see everybody's face is blurred and all the license plates are all blurred out. That's all handled with AI software. And if you do the what we were talking about before, where you um, speed it up a lot and you add motion blur, you won't actually see anybody. You know, you won't you won't actually uh, register anybody there. Um, next question: James Foslade in Minneapolis, Minnesota, asking, would there be a way to script Google Street View to create a time lapse? You know, I think that what you would do is you could probably build a video inside of Google the uh, Google Earth Studio, and you could build the movement of it. And just let it do it really nice and slowly and then speed it all up and add the motion blur and do everything else. You probably make that work. Absolutely. All right. We made it to the end. <laughs> Enough questions, uh, you know, to get to the very end. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully that inspires people to – the goal of these second hours oftentimes is not so much to teach you every little thing that there is to do, but to inspire you to think about it and to think about what those things might be. And maybe people can go out and shoot some. Uh, and ask more questions, feel free. You know, we're not going to come back to time lapse as a second hour anytime soon. We might do some labs uh, about time lapse um, uh, and, and look at some of those things. But um, but I would I would highly recommend going out and shooting some and experimenting with it. And remember, you can always ask questions in the first hour. So if you run into things as you start to build these, um, jump into the first hour and ask those questions any day of the week, seven days a week. <laughs> so, so you can always do that. Jump into after hours if you want to talk about those things. And again, we may do some labs where we talk more about those things. Um, it may give us all the same footage and let us play with it. And so we're, that's probably in the offing um, in the not too distant future. Um, but uh, but I, the goal was just to kind of inspire people. It, it's a great skill to have. And the best way to get good at it is to do it. Just do lots of it. Just do things that that let you kind of play with it and, and figure it out. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's hard to, like many things, it's hard to just get good at it the weekend you want to do it. So um, I'm a big fan of, you know, I start thinking, oh, I might want to use this two months from now. And I just start, you know, cranking like I, I want to do great HDR in two, in two months from now. I started a year ago, <laughs> you, know, to, to, you know, so, so that's the, you know, the more you can do over time, the better you'll better off you'll be. So I highly recommend going out. I think you're going to find that a lot of clients and viewers really enjoy um, the, the effective time lapse. And so, and you'll enjoy it too. So I would highly recommend using it when you can. All right. Thank you so much to the producers for all the great questions. Kept the thing going. Thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. Um, and um, and thank you to the incredible crew on the back end that makes this work every single day. Um, there's kind of development. There's changes. There's movement. There's you know lots of things. And so we just really appreciate all the work you put into it. Traveled 93,000 miles. Almost made 1K. 150,000 uh, kilometers. And 847 million bananas for scale. So uh, it's a good day. All right. See you tomorrow. Right now, we're going to jump into After Hours. That's a lot of bananas. That's a lot. That's a lot of potassium.
but not millions. Just like pull it up in your laps. <laughs>